are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we are picking up this evening with step number 26 on discernment, which we've been reading for the last couple of weeks. It is, I think, one of the longest steps in the entire work, uh, again, which speaks of its importance for us in the spiritual life. And as we've mentioned before, it is the fruit of humility. So when the heart has been purified and the impediments of our passions have been removed, then we can develop a certain clarity to perceive the things of the kingdom of God and of God himself as, as well as within our own hearts. Uh, but also temptations as they're coming towards us, the actions and the wiliness, of, if you will, of the demons and uh and so we'll be looking at all of these things uh, this evening, that everything that we need to be attentive to uh, in the spiritual life, and often very subtle, uh, things that we take for granted. Uh, so Climacus is ever so perceptive and psychologically astute, as always. Uh, we are on page 203, number 92. Even a small thing can be not small to the great. But to the small, even great things are not altogether perfect. So even a small thing cannot be small to the great. Um, and to the small, even great things are not altogether perfect. Uh, and so those who are humble often see the things that are within the world that maybe seem to have great significance, worth, benefit. Things such as success, money, uh, talents, all of these things that seem great might not be altogether great. And uh, similarly, uh, uh, even uh, they're also uh, not altogether perfect. Uh, so even things that are great, uh, so the virtues that we see within ourselves or within others are uh, imperfect in, in light of the perfection of the virtue of Christ and his love. That this is why we always have to keep our eyes fixed upon him. That even as we are growing in virtue and even as we begin to see the things that are good and beautiful and true, often our vision is partial and within us, these virtues are uh, sometimes mixed with our imperfection. 
And so we always are to be in this position of striving to enter by the narrow way and to give ourselves over more and more fully to the grace of God, uh, to allow even our, what is good within us, even our virtues must be touched by the grace of God. Number 93. When the sky is clear of clouds, the sun shines brightly, and the soul, freed from its former habits and granted forgiveness, has certainly seen the divine light. So when the grace of God floods a soul that has been repentant, that has humbled itself, uh, it is divine light that shines upon us and illuminates uh, not only with what is within our hearts, uh, but the path that is set before us. We can come to see with a greater clarity, even if it's only one step in front of ourselves. Uh, we come to see with a greater clarity the path that God desires us to take. And often it is one step at a time. Uh, Cardinal Newman has a beautiful hymn uh, called Lead Kindly Light. And one of the lines of it is, one step enough for, for me, it, that uh, having the light to take one step forward in the spiritual life is enough to allow us to continue to make that journey toward God and toward virtue. Uh, what we will be warned about over and over again in this uh, step on discernment is that we can seek things that are beyond us and find ourselves then being radically humbled, that we think ourselves capable of things that God does not desire for us or that is beyond our ability uh, spiritually and otherwise. Number 94, sin is one thing, idleness another, indifference another, passion another, and a fall another. He who is able to investigate this in the Lord, let him seek clearly. So these, all these distinctions, uh, while they might seem to blend together in our minds uh, as seeming perhaps insignificant, uh, for the one who is seeking God, uh, that we are going to search for the meaning and the distinction between these things, what it is to sin uh, and the action that is included in that, idleness, uh, being uh, uh, lazy or, or negligent in the spiritual life, indifference. Uh, we become so focused upon the things of, of this world and even at times so focused upon the burdens that sometimes oppress us that we lose sight of God. We become indifferent to pursuing the spiritual life and pursuing even the means of healing for ourselves. Passion is a, a habitual sin. So an action that is repeated so often uh, that uh, it becomes deeply rooted in us uh, and this is what makes them so difficult to overcome when we've uh, been immersed in something perhaps for decades. Uh, and even when we don't desire it, don't want it, that we find ourselves stepping into it over and over again. And so this is, is what would be called a passion. 
and a fall another. So a fall might be, again, a momentary uh, weakening, uh, but not necessarily reflective of uh, a loss of desire for God or the things of the spiritual life, that one can emerge from this repentant and uh, even more humble before God and zealous in the spiritual life. So all these things, uh, again, become very important for us to, as he says, investigate and to investigate clearly. Uh, if you happen to be in town, the second Sunday of, the, of March, we'll, we'll be reflecting upon the, the capital sins uh, here after our divine liturgy. So if you want to come for liturgy and a brunch and a talk on that, we'll be able to unpack uh, in particular the the head sins, if you will, the ones that lead to all the rest. And um, you're more than welcome. We'll also record it and make it available. Number 95. Uh, sorry, there's a, a question comment there. Virtue beyond our ability. Yes, you know, there can be uh, an overreaching in the sense that uh, someone tries to leap up the ladder in a single bound, you know, in uh, a kind of desire to have the discernment or to think they have it or uh, contemplation without having dealt with the reality of one's internal life and the passions. And so instead of focusing on the immediate need, we can reach beyond uh, to something that is uh, greater than what we are capable of at the moment, or even of receiving the grace uh, in such a way that well, we would be able to hold on to it. Uh, number 95. Some praise the gift of wonder working and the manifest spiritual gifts above all not knowing that there are many higher than this, which are hidden and which therefore remain secure. What an important thought in our day. Uh, and certainly it was a uh, struggle back in our Lord's time as well. A wicked and evil generation uh, seeks after, you know, wonders or extraordinary things, miracles, uh, that uh, there can be a desire for us to be wild, to have God prove himself to us. And over and over again, we see in the scriptures, uh, people asking our Lord to prove himself and, uh, to, to, uh, and to verify the things that he was claiming about himself and about God through miraculous works. And uh, in our day, we can uh, we will still often in the spiritual life gravitate to the extraordinary, what seem to be the charismatic gifts, speaking in tongues, or as John says here, of wonder working. Uh, and, uh, but we always have to be mindful of things like um, what St. Isaac the Syrian says, that he who can see his own sin is greater than he who can raise the dead that the ability to see one's own sin with clarity and so repent to turn toward God to receive forgiveness, but also the grace of greater conversion is greater than uh, the, the power to raise a person 
from from the dead who might live a few years longer, but nonetheless, it's not salvific and certainly not for ourselves. And uh, and John actually says that the hidden things are certainly the most valuable, partly because they're more secure, that often the individual does not see them himself or herself, uh, but they're also hidden uh, from the, the demons uh, that, you know, what is not made manifest uh, in a clear way is harder to attack. And this is why we should be careful and guarded about speaking uh, about our spiritual life or experiences that we might have uh, of God in the spiritual life. Uh, so that we might not be uh, attacked by the demons and drawn into conceit or pride over them. And uh, you might remember uh, a little quote from one of the saints who says, what we see in the saints is the least part of them. That what God is doing within the human heart, what transformation is taking place by his grace of entering into the heart, when we are made temples of the Holy Spirit or when we receive Holy Communion, the transformation that takes place is beyond uh, the measures of our mind to grasp. And, uh, and so we don't see, or it's hard for us to conceive everything that God is doing and the gifts that he bestows upon us. And part of this, again, is that they might be something that's more secure or that we might not attribute uh, things in the spiritual life to ourselves, but always to the, the grace of God. Number 96, he who is perfectly purified sees the soul of his neighbor, although not the actual substance of the soul and can tell its state. But he who progresses further can judge the state of the soul from the body. So, you know, a person who has been purified, whose heart has been purified, who has the gift of discernment, is able to, as it were, read souls. And we've heard stories of this in the saints, confessors who are able to tell uh, those who are their penitents, their sins before they even utter them or saints who could see the state of a soul that's in the grip of a particular sin. And John has spoken about this in regards to either the odor of sanctity or the stench of certain sins uh, that saints often or the pure of heart will be able to, to see. Uh, but John says, as one progresses in that purity and discernment, that one can even see uh, the state of the soul simply from the body, that uh, how a person holds himself, his countenance, all is revelatory of what is within the heart. If you remember in the Evergatinos, we talked a little bit about when obediences are being doled out by the abbot, uh, that you could see uh, little micro gestures uh, from the monks as they struggle to let go of their will, especially if they're asked to do something that uh, sort of interferes maybe with their even finishing another job that they were in the midst of. 
or of the job that they typically have for the monastery. Perhaps they're even cooking the meal that day and the abbot happens to be walking along and it's raining out and he sees one of the gutters of you know, water spilling out of it. And he says, so brother so-and-so today, I want you to go and you know get up there and clean out the gutters. And you could, you know, even in those who are striving, you could see this this little struggle where a moment where a person wants to say, you know, well, I'm 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 in the midst of this, or can I finish this? Rather than immediately running and doing what is asked, there can be that part of us that wants to say. Well, I, I'm doing this. Maybe this is more important uh, or more significant. Or I have to, you know, cook the, again the community meal. Am I going to be able to do both things uh, on the same on the same day? And uh, and so th there are all these things that can be uh, signs of of our impurity that are made manifest, and that those who are pure of heart can see. And again, with certain saints or holy abbots, uh, holy parents, you know, they can see in their children or their spiritual children uh, what is going on within the heart, often by how they're holding themselves or the look on their face or, uh, or you know, how fast or sluggish they uh, are on a, a particular day. It's probably hard to be honest with you to live with certain people like that. I don't think I don't imagine it being very easy to live with a saint. Uh, <clears throat> saint Philip was Philip Neri, who's one of my favorite saints, is uh, beautiful, but you know he could humble his guys in these ways that uh, were you know, you know like carrying a dog through the streets of Rome or walking to the wine shop to get a pint of wine, carrying it back in a huge flask and having people, you know, laugh at them. And, uh, and so you think that it might wear thin <laughs> uh, after a while. Uh, it might be challenging on a lot of different levels. And, uh, but nonetheless, John is telling us this for a reason, that the spiritual vision uh, enables us to certainly see our own need for healing and where, but also gives us the capacity to console, uh, to strengthen and encourage others where they might be having difficulty. Uh, a person who's pure of heart is not going to use that uh, knowledge or that ability, that vision to be able to ridicule another. It's not like the the misuse of the insensitive power, you know, where you see another sin and so you focus on that instead and, you know, criticize them for it. The pure of heart is going to see those things, but with a kind of gentleness, uh, try to cover uh, the shame of a brother or strengthen them through his prayers or fasting. This is what it allows an individual to do. Number 97, a small fire often destroys a whole forest. So too, a small flaw spoils our, all our labor. And, uh, and so there are no such things as small sins. 
we've talked about this on a couple of occasions in very various groups, but we often will have a tendency to diminish the significance of certain sins, white lies, uh, for example, or you know, watching something on television or listening something to on the radio that is off color, you know, and that nonetheless affects the the purity of heart, gossiping, you know, where there is this breakdown of charity, the mockery of another, but sometimes with the sins of speech in particular, we can uh, m make them insignificant because sometimes uh, a person is irritating and is frustrating. And because that is true, that uh, we will think that taking that liberty of saying something is not sinful. And John is saying that, you know, those who love God and love virtue and love their neighbor, are, they're never going to see anything small. And, and they know that even if it is small, that if left untended, like a small fire, it can burn down a forest. And so a small sin, uh, a look of lust towards another, if not tended to, or if one uh, allows one to ling oneself to linger in it or nurtures it, can become much more problematic. Uh, lead to sin sinful acts with oneself or with others, adultery, all kinds of things. And this is why understanding the capital sins are important as well. They're often called the deadly sins, which is a misnomer. Uh, they can lead to what is deadly, but they are capital, caput, uh, head sins. They lead to all the others. And so understanding these is important, but understanding also that none are insignificant uh, and shouldn't be insignificant in our minds. So we are called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, to be merciful as uh, our Heavenly Father is merciful, that we are given uh, grace, uh, we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit in order to strive uh, to put on Christ fully, to put on the mind of Christ, uh, to be living icons, of Christ within the world. And the more that we understand our true identity in him is going, the, the more that we have a clarity about that, the less we are going to take those things lightly, as well as the rest of our spiritual life, that it will become gradually uh, that which is all consuming for us. What we view our, all of our relations through, all of our work through, and our life as a whole, including our, our sufferings. So no small sins. Number 98. There is a rest from hostility, which awakens the power of the mind without stirring the fire of passion. And there is an exhaustion of the body which perhaps excites even movements in the flesh so that we should not trust in ourselves, but should trust in God, who without our knowledge mortifies the lust living in us. So there is a rest from hostility which awakens the power of the mind without stirring the, fa power, without stirring the fire of a passion. So 
the warring of the demons against us, what John is saying here, can ease up. And this can be done uh, by the grace of God in order that uh, we, we might come uh, to see, see the power of his grace in our life and how much we depend upon that grace. That God will allow us to relax from that spiritual battle, uh, to step back and reflect, as it were, uh, upon uh, where we stand, what we are struggling with, without our having to be knocked down a peg by allowing us to fall into a particular sin. So he simply allows us to see uh, what is problematic for ourselves. However, he says, there is an exhaustion of the body uh, that gives rise uh, to uh, the appetites of the flesh. And so a person can, uh, in an overzealous way, uh, fast too much, not, not sleep enough, uh, work too hard, that they exhaust the body. And so in their hunger for rest, instead of turning to God, sometimes they will turn to the things of this world to find a momentary consolation, to ease the mind in some, some fashion. And uh, this is done in such a way that we might be mortified uh, uh, in the sense that we, we uh, die to this sense of uh, uh, self-assurance by, by seeing that it's not just from working harder. You know, it's not our labor that is important so much as the humility with which we labor. And so if we exhaust ourselves and there is some pride in there, God will allow us to be humbled uh, through uh, allowing us to fall into may maybe a passion that we feel that we've overcome, long overcome. Number 99, when we see that some love, and, uh, some love us in the Lord, then we should not allow ourselves to be especially free with them, for nothing is so likely to destroy love and produce hatred as familiarity. Interesting thought. Uh, you hear a lot of this uh, in older spiritual writings. You don't hear people talk about this too much today, about uh, particular friendships uh, in religious communities or a kind of familiarity in the way that those who share the same sensibilities or have the same sense of humor or view of life will want to spend, you know, only time with each other. And... Uh, there is a danger of this, you know, of this kind of exclusiveness that can develop from this familiarity or the familiarity will lead us to take liberties in what we say to someone uh, that we think we know so well. And so we can say something bluntly, but without charity. And this, John tells us, can produce uh, a kind of hatred between two individuals. 
So, you know, sometimes we can destroy a, a friend, a friendship uh, by being unguarded in the way that we talk to somebody, that we aren't compassionate or sympathetic. We become rough with, with people and the way that we say things to them rather than being consoling and uh, seeking to strengthen them or encourage them. Uh, and or sometimes we can our familiarity even leads us to be indifferent to what's going on in their life. You know, if something good happens, we say nothing, make no mention of it. Uh, or if they're struggling, uh, we often will not be atten attentive to it. Uh, sometimes not as attentive as we might be even with complete strangers. And so we have to be uh, watchful of this in our own heart. Uh, uh, the Nye Paver clan, led by Carol, says familiarity breeds contempt, right, is the common saying. My mom used to say this if we spent too much time with friends. Uh, that's right, that um, it, um, solitude actually fosters intimacy. The two are linked together. And if you put two people around each other for 24 hours a day, they probably will end up hating each other. You know, they get, you know, bored with each other or irritated with each other. But in say, for example, in marriages, you know, often there's this sense that, you know, well, you're married, you should be able to spend, you know, all this time together. And actually married couples need solitude in order that they might step back uh, and in prayer or just in being reflective on how they are entering into that relationship and whether they are being attentive to the things that are most important. And so having this solitude allows them to step back into the, the relationship uh, with a greater awareness. Uh, sometimes, you know, the distinction even between introverts and extroverts is helpful here. Like ext extroverts are nourished by engagement with the world around them. They're energized by that. And so they're often very creative, outgoing, uh, constantly in involved in, in new projects and conversations with others. Uh, but if they're not careful, if they do not step back, then they can begin to do things that are simply driven by their own will or by their own desires. Introverts typically find that to be very difficult, that constant engagement with the world around them, it depletes them. And so they have to step back in order to find the strength to step out of themselves. So often they will have a greater awareness of the internal life, but also an awareness of the uh, things that one needs to be attentive and aware of, of in certain circumstances. Uh, uh, but the, so both need prayer. The extrovert needs prayer in order that that energy is directed in a way that is in accord with the will of God. Introverts need to step back in order to find the strength then to engage, to step out of themselves and engage others. Because most introverts, like myself, would be fine sitting in their room all day long and not sweat it. Uh, it's it's a hard, harder thing. And so prayer allows one you know, to look beyond, to transcend the self. 
first in one's life with God and in prayer, but then also to transcend oneself in one's daily relationships. So this idea of familiarity that John talks about is important on a lot of different levels, uh, but emphasizing, I think, this, this ability to reflect upon how we are engaging the world, especially those that we engage on a day-to-day -day basis. Not to take that for granted, the fact that we've known somebody for so long, we might know them for decades, and we can still destroy uh, that relationship by an offhanded, uncharitable comment. Uh, Mary Paz writes, I've been listening to your podcast for a year. This is the first time I've, I'm able to real time with y'all. It's so good to put faces to all your voices. God bless you, Father, for the podcast. Uh, you're very welcome. And uh, it's always good to have people join. Uh, it enriches the, the, the discussion beyond measure. So welcome. And um, I hope you're able to join us many times in the future here. Uh, Amale writes, or Anthony wrote, I'm sorry, I missed him. Uh, St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 7, talks about spouses separating for a bit. Yeah, I think, again, it's for the sake of reflection. And uh, even when the, the church speaks of separation in a marriage, it's meant to be curative, separation from bed and, and table, that sometimes that's necessary in order for individuals to step back and ask, you know, why are they married and how are they entering into that marriage? You know, where is there a lack of charity? Where does one need to be attentive? Where did things break down? And uh, how do we bring, uh, how do we find healing? And so, but I think simply on a day-to-day -day basis, it does allow for a deeper intimacy to step into that relationship with God in prayer, to into silence we again are able to hear that word that God speaks to us in, in order that we might find our way forward uh, in so many different things in our life and most especially in our relationships with others. You know, how, how, what we should be attentive to. And often we are again, so absorbed in our work uh, that familiarity can lead us into the ne neglect of the others and the neglect of even the smallest acts of charity that are necessary to hold relationships together. Sometimes friendships fall apart just because we, you know, we never call or, you know, ask how a person is doing. Uh, Amala writes, let there be spaces in, our, in your togetherness and let the winds of the heavens dance between you. Uh, uh, Kello uh, Gabran, right, the Lebanese poet. Yeah, it captures exactly, I think, what we've been talking about. Very good. Number 99. When we see that some love us, I'm sorry, number 100. The eye of the soul is spiritual and extremely beautiful. And next, after the incorporeal beings, it surpasses all things. That is why people who are still subject to the passions can often know the thoughts in the souls of others on account of their great love for them, and especially when they have not been sunk and defiled by the clay. 
if nothing is so opposed to immaterial nature as material nature, let him who reads understand. So the eye of the soul, the noose, uh, as the fathers describe it, the eye of the heart, this is what is to be purified. And so spiritually, it's really at the heart of the father's anthropology, their understanding of the human person, how God has made us. And it, our understanding of this is key for our engaging in the spiritual life in the way that we need to, that our focus, our immediate goal, uh, as St. John Cassian calls it, is purity of heart, the purifying of the noose through the ascetic life and through life of prayer and the sacramental life in order that we might see things as the angels see them, that there would be no impediment, no limitation uh, that's tied to our materiality. And so this is really the, the, uh, the end of our ascetic pursuits. It's not endurance. Uh, it's uh, seeking a kind of freedom that we might see things in the way that God desires us to see them uh, with, uh, as if with the eyes of God himself. And, uh, and so this is what bringing our appetites uh, into a particular order does, but as, as well as um, overcoming, uh, I think, the, the passions. And it's interesting, he, uses, he says, even those who find themselves in the grip of certain passions, when they love someone, they can see certain truths about them. And so this is a kind of clue for us that even when we are in the grip of certain sins or struggling, if we really love someone deeply, we can see their needs. We can see what they're struggling with, what's important to them. That love clarifies our vision, our capacity to see the truth. And this is what we are seeking in the ascetic life is to love more freely. So again, it's not uh, simple disciplines. It's not endurance. It's this uh, pursuit of freedom to love as God has made us capable of loving through our redemption, but also through uh, the outpouring of his grace in our life. So really recast the spiritual life for us in an amazing way. And... Uh, you know, people often mention the Desert Fathers to me, and um, and I think they see them as being these harsh figures who kind of were masochistic, who punished themselves and had this really negative anthropology. They hated their humanity. And just the opposite is true. They had an honest view of the impact of sin upon our capacity to see the truth, but also to will it, uh, to love. And so the ascetic life is not 
meant to be punitive or an expression of contempt, but rather uh, an expression of our understand of our understanding of the beauty of the human person. That Christians have the highest view of our identity of what it is to be a human being. We are created for God. We are created to live in this eternal love. And we have a desire within us that only can be met by that eternal love and entering into that relationship with God. And so, you know, uh, you know, Christianity is not, you know, as it's often cast as being a kind of repressive force in our culture. You know, I, I can't say that nobody taught the spiritual life in that fashion. I think there have been plenty of repressed priests and nuns and those who had this kind of self-hatred and this view, you know, of sexuality and all things of the world as being, you know, from the from the devil, you know. And so we've earned probably that reputation. You know, people's rejection of Christianity is often rooted more in our mediocrity and living it than anything and our distortion of it. But the truth of what is made manifest in the writings of the fathers and the lives of the saints is this vision of humanity that is revealed to us in and through Christ's embrace of our humanity, in and through the incarnation. All of this transforms how we understand ourselves as human beings. Uh, so much so that the fathers say that what has not been assumed has not been redeemed that in the incarnation, the fullness of our humanity is embraced in order that it might be transformed by the grace of God and raised up to what God desires for us, which is to share in this eternal intimacy with him, to participate in the life of God, deification. So it's something that's extraordinarily beautiful. I think more often than not, we should be moved to tears when we read some of the things that the fathers write for the beauty of it. I think initially it can be jarring uh, because uh, it's hard to imagine ourselves uh, pursuing that freedom in the, with the zeal and the vigor that they often do. And often we've never tasted the freedom that they speak of here, that vision that allows us to see the truth about others or the truth about God. And so often it's hard for us to believe until we begin to pursue it in reality. Any comments about anything so far? You know, this is certainly an important paragraph about the, the noose. If you're interested uh, in studying the noose a little bit more, the father's understanding of it, we began our podcast series way back with, oh, I don't know, must have been maybe six months worth of podcast simply on uh, the father's understanding of this, because it is so key to understanding their whole spiritual uh, spirituality, their worldview, their anthropology. So it's right back at the beginning of the podcast on the website. 
website if you're interested. Number 101, superstitious observances in the case of lay people are contrary to divine providence and in the case of monks to spiritual knowledge. So we are to avoid superstition, you know, reading into things, seeing signs in the things around us uh, as manifestations of, of God or uh, of, the, of what is mystical. We are to avoid it because it can lead us into um, great error. There can be great deception found within it. The, the demons often seek to get us focused upon such things uh, in order to distract us from pursuing that, again, which is more hidden, but more valuable, humility uh, and the like. And so it's contrary to divine providence, he says, for one who's not in the religious life. So for any Christian as a whole, this is not part of the will of God for us to be looking for signs in worldly things, changes in the weather or whatever it might be as uh pointing us to something that God is telling us. Uh, but, but for the monk in particular, who's dedicated his whole life to the pursuit of God, it's contrary to spiritual knowledge as a whole, that everything that has been taught to us from the scriptures on is contrary to such a view. And so we have to be careful not to fall into it. You know, I once knew a, a Catholic school teacher, uh, and uh, it was disconcerting to hear about it because uh, she said that often at lunch break that the teachers would go and to a, a palm reader to have their palms read. And it's a, a frightening thing, you know, because these are the, you know, teachers who were teaching little children. This was grade school. And, and among all of them, there were two that were very faithful, but the rest were very secular and their view of things, seeing this is harmless, but it's exactly what John is saying, that this is not of the will of God. You know, the, what you are opening yourself up to is not the Holy Spirit, but just the contrary. Number 102, I'm sorry, Sister Barbara Jean writes, St. Basil came back from the desert saying that complete gospel calls us to include service of others in one's authentic spiritual life. Right. So maybe you could articulate there, sister, if you don't mind, what St. Basil means by this. Uh, you mean being fully human or fully having embraced the gospel? Fully embracing the gospel. Right. Because Matthew 25, mm -hmm. um, he did go to the desert for a time when it was the thing to do. Right. He lived at that age. And um, his reflection led him to exactly this. It, 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 you, it can become very self-centered. Right. And it can become it can overflow in love, and certainly even even in the desert where they where they're not completely alone. Right. But uh, um, he felt called to service of others, and in in 
welcomed others to join him in doing that. After he became a bishop, there was a famine in that area and he was suddenly challenged like similar to what we were in the pandemic, the, we saw he saw all the social ills, and right. and set about meeting them, along with the monks, right to leprosy, sex trafficked women, and mm-hmm. um, the hungry, the poor, right. travelers, you know, all all of that, and um, and he wrote ex- uh, uh, he wrote extensively uh, about the gospel and always included loving service excellent yeah you know everything you said i think is 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 right on mark that you know we don't live in this bubble and so this authentic spiritual life is self-emptying but also this willingness to step in to the world of others and not in a condescending way but in the same way that christ did that we take it upon ourselves, uh, the burden of our neighbor upon ourselves. And um, and so we don't live in isolation. And e- even the monks in the desert are not to see themselves as isolated from the world. Uh, if that's true, then there's very little meaning in what they're doing. I think they have to see themselves as entering into the heart of the world uh, and uh, in and through their entering into their into the life of Christ and giving themselves over to to Him fully, uh, and so there is no individual Christian. You know that we there has to be, you know, in this authentic Christian life, a willingness uh, to love as as Christ loves, and sometimes spiritual life takes on it. You know this distorted characteristic you know, like putting on a mask and we can wear it in such a way as to protect ourselves from others rather than it drawing us toward them. And uh, and we see it, you know, the emphasis on the, the differences so often rather than being able to see the, the other. And, uh, you know, I think in some ways when Francis began his pontificate, you know, this idea of smelling like the sheep you know, it's to really enter into the life of others, uh, not from a distance and not as an abstraction, but truly, you know, with this charity that, uh, you know, does not stand aloof from the crosses that others bear. And I think so often, and he could see this, that, uh the often what comes first is the judgment of the other rather than the embrace of the other and this seeking to understand but alleviate the sorrows and uh, and so all of this i think calls us as sister has allowed us to see uh, through saint basil's writing in particular uh, to something that is not individualistic Sacrificial intercessory prayer, she writes, for others is also service of the body of Christ. Absolutely. Okay. Number 102. Let those who are infirm in soul recognize God's visitation from their bodily circumstances, dangers, and outward temptations, 
but the perfect recognize it from the presence of the Holy Spirit and the accession of spiritual gifts. So it's interesting that God is present in the experience of the consequence of our sin. And we should see uh, his presence, his coming to us when we experience the, the bodily uh, effects of that or the dangers or the outward temptations where we find ourselves being warred against because of our, our negligence. It's God coming to us, calling us to a deeper repentance by allowing us to experience in the fullness of the truth, the reality of what sin brings to us. Uh, again, it's not punitive, but it's curative. The perfect, though, he says, begin to see more and more uh, the presence of God through the, the presence of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit in, in one's life. And so not so much through the, the trials, but uh, again, one has to go through this purification to let go of our attachment to the very things that often bring about those bodily circumstances or further temptations. 103. This is an interesting one. There is a demon who comes to us when we are lying in bed and shoots at us evil and unclean thoughts so that when we do not stand for prayer because of our laziness and thus are not armed against them, we may fall asleep with these foul thoughts and then have foul dreams too. He follows this up in the next par paragraph, I think, uh, was something that's equally helpful. But a kind of watchfulness at these times in the day when we are vulnerable and certainly when we are fatigued and we are preparing for bed, uh, often that can be the main thing on our mind. I can't wait to, to crawl into bed and uh, to go to sleep, but we are to prepare ourselves for that reality because of the vulnerability. The evil one will take advantage of that. So to stand during prayer is to, uh, to make oneself more vigilant uh, and as we enter into this different state uh, in the course of, of our day well, as we were preparing for sleep. And uh, if we aren't, if we're lazy about this, we might fall asleep in a way that's unguarded and uh, we allow the mind or the, or the mind on its own begins to drift. And then also what becomes manifest then is dreams that are reflective of that. And so dreams, you know, if they have, uh, uh, if the, uh, the scenes in a dream are sinful in nature. It's not necessarily, it's not sinful in and of itself because we are sleeping, but it still can be a reflection of the lack of purity of heart or laziness or negligence that we have in terms of the things that we expose ourselves to in the course of our day, that we were not watchful enough. And so again, we don't want to take those things lightly. He then goes on to say, there is an evil, uh, evil spirit called the forerunner who assails us as soon as we awake from sleep and defiles our first thought. So devote the first fruits of your day to the Lord, because the whole day will belong to whoever gets the first start. 
It is worth hearing what an expert told me. From my morning, he said, I know the course of the whole day. And so the to give the first fruits of the day to God always, uh, to leap from the bed in the morning as if it were a bed of coals, to turn the mind and the thoughts to God uh, as quickly as possible. So to have the Jesus prayer on one's lips uh, where we uh, call out for his help. Philip Neary used to encourage some of his uh, spiritual children when they get up in the morning to immediately bow down and make a prostration, to kiss the ground, to make an obeisance before God that I offer this day to you. A very simple thing, but in a very concrete fashion, setting the tone for the day and exact, doing exactly what John says here, whoever gets the first start. And so, you know, the snooze alarm was probably created by somebody who was possessed by a demon uh, because it, it allows a person to perpetuate that dowling in bed in the morning. I'll hit it again and again and again. And now that people have cell phones too, it's funny, I've seen some pictures of people's alarm clocks on their phone that they'll have, you know, uh, 5.30, 5.45, 6, 6.15. They just keep, you know, hitting, you know, letting the alarms pass until finally they have to force themselves to get up. But this this is an important thing. It's, it's one of the first things I remember from my reading of the Father, strangely enough. And that little phrase of leaping from the bed as if it were a bed of coals, that was such a vivid image for me. Uh, because if you think about it, you know, you'd, you'd jump, you'd leap out of bed uh, rather than sort of, you know, slouch out of bed in the way that we typically do. Uh, and so this is wonderful advice, you know, to give the, as a whole, to give the first fruits of the day to God, it really becomes the lens through which we then view everything. So even if we, if our day is chaotic, we seem to produce nothing or we're scattered. If we have started the day with our focus upon God, then we offer all of that to him and have no anxiety about it at all and start the next day uh, anew with taking up whatever he's entrusted us to. So it, it frees us from this sense of being shackled to productivity, establishing our worth. What establishes our worth is our intimacy with the Lord. We might have a day that just does not go our way. You know, constant interruptions or failures or the car breaks down, whatever it might be. But if we start that day or we fall down and break our wrist and, uh, you know, that can sort of ruin the day for you. But again, if your day starts with prayer, even something like that, one can uh, sort of take up and offer it to God and uh, not be overcome by a spirit of uh, despondency. Anthony writes, that kind of sounds like superstitious, like augury. Right. Uh, are you talking about the things that we talked about earlier, I imagine? Morning. Uh, off. Huh? Uh, well, 
I'm talking about like if the first thought of your day sets the tone of the day. I could easily have a bad thought to the day and mope about, oh, my day is ruined. Oh, oh. <laughs> but, 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 this doesn't mean the end of the day, but you could have a great day and you could say, oh, look at that sin. That sounds pretty good. And at the end, oh, boy, I really rest up my day when I could have had a great day. Oh, you Italians, I tell you, you're always nitpicking. Uh, <laughs> no, I get what you're <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, no, I get what you're saying. You know, I think, though, as a general rule, what he's saying here is that, you know, um, it's, you know, it's often how we begin today is reflective of what we've given our hearts to and our love for something. You know, if somebody has plans to go out fishing or they're traveling to a football game, they'll jump out of bed, you know, before dawn to make that trip or to get out on the stream because they love it. And I think what John is saying here too, you know, we wake to the beloved. And so we jump immediately to be attentive to him and to listen to him and also then to protect our hearts. So you're, you're right. You know, I think there is a sense where, where we could be superstitious about this and say, okay, if we are embattled, which we probably will be many times warred against at that time, precisely for the reason that John says, these are vulnerable moments when we're going to bed, when we're waking up. And so we might have a thought that comes upon us while we're lying there in bed, but that should be impetus for us to jump up and get moving, you know, not to lay there and mope about it, but to, you know, to engage in the warfare. But we want to try to avoid that as much as possible. You know, when you wake up sometimes, Father, uh, if you hear a song, um, you know, and that seems like that song sticks with you for mm -hmm. the day. You can't, you just can't shake it. Right. Uh, it's the same thing if you wake up with uh, Jesus prayer. Uh, that sticks with you through the whole day in a way. Uh, I, I, I think uh, maybe that's an analogy uh, that I can relate to. Yeah, it's perfect. People speak of what they call earworms, you know, when they get a song stuck in their mind, as you just described, and they find themselves humming it all day or thinking about it all day. And uh, whereas the Jesus prayer you know, is, again, something that gently moves the mind and the heart toward God. And as that forms the mind and the heart, that should become more and more natural. You know, this movement toward God, that's what we want to establish. And so the leaping out of bed, the saying of the Jesus prayer is all to, to it's not, again, an abstraction. It's meant to lead us toward the beloved. This is why we do it. All right, that brings us to 8.30, so we'll stop there for the night. A lot to think about here tonight, and a lot of good things. So uh, don't forget to stand before you go to bed tonight and say your prayers, and don't just flop in the sack, and uh, be attentive to what's going on in your mind and heart. Okay, so why don't we close, uh, as always, with our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. Now, Lord, God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.